So would you please stand for the reading of God's word. Acts 5, beginning at verse 1. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard, it, heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, please be with us today. Use this powerful story and the parable to teach us what it is we need to know and believe and the way we need to respond. For your glory's sake, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I'm going to do something. I'm, I'm just curious. And don't be embarrassed. How many of you have never heard the story of Ananias and Sapphira? Raise your hand if you've never heard it. All right, there's a, there's a couple. Thank you for your courage in doing that. I imagine there's others who um, haven't heard it, but they were just a little embarrassed. How many of you, and again, I want you to raise your hand, read this passage and say, I need help understanding how I might explain that to someone who doesn't know this actually happened. Raise your hand. Okay, good, so I'm gonna keep talking then. Um, <laughs> this, this is a terrifying sermon to preach. It's not actually that hard to understand what's going on. So sometimes people say, that's a tough passage. It's actually not a tough passage. It's a terrifying passage. And it's terrifying because it is the word of the Lord. So I just said, as we always do, this is the word of the Lord. And you said, thanks be to God, amen. And I believe you. But I also believe that some of us wish this wasn't in the book of Acts. We could handle it if it was in the Old Testament. But this isn't. This is just after Pentecost. This is in the early days of this upbeat record of history as the church is growing. And then all of a sudden, this couple are no more. It really happened. If we are 
not that comfortable with it being in the New Testament, and we wish it was in the Old Testament, but we know that's not possible, we might be tempted to think of it as a parable, or at least to wish it was a parable. That's why I've put them together. The one at the bottom, verse 44, is a parable, and it's an amazing parable. Matthew says the kingdom of heaven. So he's speaking about the kingdom of heaven, the reign of Christ, the lordship of Christ. He says it is like treasure hidden in a field. And this treasure is so great that a man found and covered it up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells what? All that he has and buys that field because it's worth it. That's a parable. There's no man named there, just a man. Jesus used that parable to teach a principle. Luke gives us the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Luke told Theophilus in Luke 1, I'm giving you an orderly account from eyewitnesses so that you can have reason to believe the things that have been taught. Luke knows what a parable is. He was carried along by the Holy Spirit to write them. He also knows what real history is. And Ananias and Sapphira is real history. It is not a parable. Though you might wish it was, just an illustration to teach important points about the kingdom of heaven as a treasure. It's not a parable. A man named Ananias died and his wife three hours later because they lied to God. It's history. It's in the church. And it's not a passage that we're eager for skeptics or seekers or even maybe young believers to bring up, but it's important. Here's why it's important. In this church, if you're visiting, we believe all of God's word is God's word from the beginning of Genesis to the end. And there are parts of God's word that are not popular. There are parts of God's word that bring great offense. As a church, we're not willing to tear those pieces of scripture out. We seek to say the truth about the word of God and stand on it. And that's important because what scripture says about itself is this, all scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So that means as Luke was carried along by the Holy Spirit to write this account, God intended it to be used thousands of years later, continuing until he returns to teach his church, to rebuke his church, to correct his church, and to train his church. And so that's why we're thankful. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. So what's going on? To understand, we need to look at Acts 4. So open your Bible there. Peel back a page if you need to. And I want you to go to verse 32. Now we told you as we've preached through Acts that there were parts of Acts that were specific for that time to bring about the authority of the, the apostolic leadership. Certain things that were happening there that don't continue. In other words, they're not normative. And then there are things that actually are normative. So here we have this description of the church, Acts 4.32. Now the full number, that means all who were part of it, and it had been growing by thousands, the full number of those who believed were of one heart 
and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. Now, this is maybe going to be something you don't want to hear, but that's actually normative. That's the way the church should be living today. The heart of that is normative. There's not one of us in here that should be saying, this is mine. We say this is mine about Sunday school rooms and particular classes. So we, we're selfish. What the Lord is saying is, no, no, no. It is all mine. That's normative for believers. That doesn't mean you don't own property. It doesn't mean you don't have a car. It doesn't mean you can't say, this is my shirt. But at the heart of it, this spirit in the church of being of one heart and soul, and no one saying that anything belongs to him, but it was together, his own. That's normative. Now, this is important. The application of this was not commanded. What you're about to see was never commanded. It was voluntary. And it's incredible. In fact, it's more powerful because it wasn't commanded, but because it was voluntary. So look with me. No, now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. That should also be normative. There should not be a needy person among us. Now, that can be relative, okay? I drive a 2006 Suburban. It has 177,000 miles. I don't need a new one. It stinks. It smells bad inside. That's why we have Febreze. But I don't need a new one. It's a first world problem if I think I need a new one. Now, I'm not saying it would be wrong for me to buy a new one. You get my point. There are other people, though, that have real need, even in our midst. And when that need is made known, brothers and sisters, we should be eager to respond. Not just to give, just so it goes away for a moment, but eager to respond. That spirit is what I'm talking about being normative. Verse 34, there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. And they laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each one as he had need. Now, this is important. That was voluntary. The spirit of God was moving in such a way that the people were responding that way. Never was it commanded that you should go and sell your property and all of it. It wasn't. But the movement of God's grace and the power of what was happening caused this people to be contagious with the gospel. And so now we move from this general description of the body, one of spirit, one of soul, to a specific individual named Barnabas. Verse 36 Thus, Joseph, who was called by the apostle, apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus. So what Luke's doing is saying, this is a real man. This is not a parable. This individual goes by this name. This is where he lives. This is what his, his nationality is. And he tells us what he does. Verse 37, he sold a field that belonged to him and he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Incredible, so generous. He's compelled by the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. He's not being selfless. He's not motivated from pride. He's compelled by the gospel. And so he owns a field. And he knows that if he sells it, the proceeds of that can go to impact the needy, to impact the church. And so he does it. He wasn't commanded to do it. 
That's important. He volunteers. Now, in your Bible, you have a break here. It goes from Acts 4.37 to Acts 5.1. Remember that verse numbers and chapter numbers are not inspired. They were added later so that we could find passages of Scripture. And the reason that is important is you might read this one day in your Bible reading and get all the way through Acts 4.37, pick up the next day or a couple days later and start in Acts 5 and simply read, but a man named Ananias, and you don't get the context of what's going on, and it's really important. Here's why. 5.1, but a man named Ananias with his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property. So here's this field, just like Barnabas. Barnabas sells a field. Honey, let's sell a field. Barnabas experiences the joy and freedom of what God's called him to do, and he does it. And I'm sure the response is remarkable inside him as well as the body, because they're all of one heart and soul. So Ananias and Sapphira, we know nothing else about them at this point, also sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, this is premeditated. This is premeditated spiritual deception. He kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet, just like Barnabas had done. Now imagine him bringing it. Barnabas knows what the note said. He knows how much was recorded. He knows how much he received. So does his wife. Then he takes only some of it and he drops it at the apostles' feet just like Barnabas did. But what's going on in the back of his mind? What has he been thinking about? This is really important. He was never commanded to do that. He watched Barnabas do it. He witnessed that. He knew of it. Those stories carried on in this young church. But he's lying. He knows he's lying. But he is going through with it. Then Peter speaks. Verse 3. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. Verse four is very important. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? We can own property. It was his property. The spirit of the church should be one of selflessness, but he could do with that property what he wanted to do. This is important. Peter then says, and after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? What Luke is telling us is that Ananias and Sapphira didn't have to sell the property. And even after they sold the property, they didn't have to give it all to the church. They could have said, that's too much. We're not there. We think Barnabas is crazy. We're going to give 50%. We're going to give 10%. We're going to give 1% for now. That's just where we are. And I don't think they would have dropped dead. They dropped dead because they lied. 
They dropped dead because of three things underneath the lie that you and I are all so easily tempted by. And that's where I want to go. And this is really important. A few weeks ago, I was riding my bike. And it was a long ride. Mondays I typically take as a solo day, a day of prayer, of study. And I'm on a trail. And as I'm riding, I'm just praying and talking to the Lord. And I'm like, Father, why? Why did Ananias and Sapphira die? How many of you want to know? I'm just curious. Good. I'm going to keep going. And I just kept thinking that he would speak something profound to me that all the commentators I've read hadn't seen yet, that I was going to be able to come in here and say, hey, Charles Spurgeon never even preached this text. He didn't. Listen to what I have to say. And God answered that prayer. He gave me a profound word, but it wasn't what I expected. It was so much simpler, in some ways so much harder. They deserved it. I stopped. I got off my bike. I sat on a bench and I really struggled. Let that wash over you a bit. They died because they deserved it. And if you're like I was in that moment, there's a part of you saying, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. What about grace? Well, grace is always present. They deserved it because they lied to God. They deserved it because they sinned. They deserved it because I deserve it. They deserve it because you deserve it. They deserve it because the man asking them the questions, and Ananias, how has Satan so filled your heart, also deserved it. When he said, I don't even know the man. We all deserve it. Every one of us and every creature God's ever made, all mankind has fallen short of the glory of God. And if we don't start there and admit it, then we actually can't appreciate the gospel of grace. Now, here's a question I cannot answer. Why Ananias and Sapphira? I don't know except to say it was for his glory. And what God is doing in this moment is that he is protecting his young church. He has been protecting them from the external conflicts coming at them, but now the submersive, intrusive conflict from within that is threatening to jeopardize this movement, he's going to deal with it. And he does in a very swift way. But it's not unjust. God's not an unjust God. It happened. It was a real event. The reason we have to start there is because God's grace is everything. It wasn't suddenly an absence of grace. God didn't suddenly throw a tantrum. It's a story that happens that elevates the glory of God the reverence of God, 
the justice of God, the wrath of God, and what should exist in every believer, the appropriate fear of God. So underneath that sin of lying to the Holy Spirit, there are three things that we need to see that are really important. And the first one is this. They were motivated out of a false identity. Ananias and Sapphira lied. When we lie, though, we're lying to cover up something else that's darker and deeper. The the pyramid or the iceberg. Lying is seen. It's visible. Luke is the one telling us what Peter said. Why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? So we know that that's that's part of the sin. But if we look underneath the waterline, we see this massive volume of sin. And it begins with this false identity. They wanted to have the appearance of looking godly. They wanted to have the appearance of looking like they were all in. They wanted to have the appearance of looking like Barnabas. He just sold his field. He just laid all of the proceeds at the apostles' feet. Look at the response of what's happening in this church. Let's sell our field. What will people think of us? False identity leads to this this false appearance. How do we do that? Perhaps we live in spiritual deception too, where we're putting ourselves out in front of people, giving them the appearance that we're more godly than we really are. It's a temptation. It actually starts young. When I became a Christian, I was discipled by, I I called him back then a modern-day disciple, It wasn't your typical man discipling a young high school student. He bought me that Bible I've shown you before. He had me start memorizing scripture. And he said, every passage of scripture you memorize, put a yellow highlighter on it. After I finished memorizing 60 verses, he said, let's now memorize Matthew 5, 6, and 7. I did it in one day. Matthew chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. (laughs) I went to his house. I said, I'm done. He said, wow, you really are a prodigy. And then I told it to him. He said, oh, Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7. Well, that took a week. (laughs) Just kidding. So (laughs) moving on. It took months. But each time I memorized the section, I highlighted it. I wrote in that Bible. That Bible was well-worn. And I remember when somebody took note of that and said, wow, you must really be serious about your faith. You ever see people like that? You ever seen Pete Dyson's Bible? Pete carries one around that looks like Moses wrote it. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. <laughs> Sometimes we're that silly that even in the things that we carry, we're trying to give the impression that something's happening in us that's maybe deeper than it really is. We can hide behind theology We can hide behind intelligence. We can hide behind quotes. And in fact, the older, the more antiquated the quote, the the more godly we sound. We can hide behind so many things when deep inside, it's nothing more than a spiritual deception. We're not really that sincere about our faith. It can be in the way in which we express our faith. How intense we look, how emotional we look. False identities can be born in recognition. 
our names being printed in something, or here's how wicked Satan is, not having our names printed, because actually that looks a little more godly. But who's the focus the whole time? Still me. Ananias and Sapphira did not have their eyes on Christ. They had their eyes on themselves and this false identity. It can be in our attendance, where we sit, how engaged we are, whether we take notes or don't. So many things can have our heads swiveling horizontally where we're trying to look really godly. But deep down, it might just be spiritual deception. It might just be a false identity. I remember a man when I was in St. Louis coming into my office. One of the first things he said to me was, I haven't missed a quiet time in 31 years. That's impressive. And then he told me about a three-year affair that he was still in the middle of. Broken. All that time, such false identity. Ananias and Sapphira had that. And I think we're deeply tempted with it too. Brothers and sisters, God sees every part of us, every motivation, and gives us profound mercy each day when we come to him confessing. The second thing that was underneath the sin of lying, and this certainly is something we need to pay attention to, is that they had false security. Their security was not in Jesus alone. It was in their wealth. It was in their resources. That's why they weren't free to do what Barnabas did. Because even if they considered it, even if for a moment the, the, the identity was pure and the thought of moving towards that was actually pure, suddenly the question of, well, what will happen if how can we do this, Ananias? How can we do this, Sapphira? Fair questions. Good questions, actually. Is God calling us to do this? He called Barnabas to do it. But their trust was in keeping some back for some reason. And for all of us, the temptation is to put our security in insecure things. Whether it's money, title, our own time, our own possession, whatever. And the Lord is saying, I'm the only secure thing. But at the root of it all, and this is really important for us to see, is that they had no fear of God. Go all the way back to Adam and Eve. Trace the pattern of sin and temptation. It's there. This passage for most of us reads more like an Old Testament text. If you know your Bible, you might know that in Joshua 7, something similar happened. A man named Achan with the Israelite army was commanded not to take any of the plunder. But he did. In his own words, he said, I coveted. 
And what he coveted was a cloak, silver, and a bar of gold. And he took them, and he hid them, and he kept them back. Now, this is really interesting. The Greek Old Testament's called the Septuagint. There is a word in that story in Joshua 7 that defines keeping back, holding back. It's the same word used for Ananias and Sapphira. And it's the only time in the Greek Old Testament that word is ever used. And the swift justice of God was to destroy Achan. God cares about his holiness. He cares about his righteousness. He cares about his church. And so in this account, we see that Ananias and Sapphira lacked profoundly a fear of God. And my dear friends, I think the church today does as well. I want to read something to you written by Mike Iaconelli, who's no longer alive, who founded Youth Specialties years ago, came out of Young Life. He wrote a book called Dangerous Wonder. And what I'm about to read to you is very powerful. It's going to take a couple of minutes, but it's something that we all need to hear. So lean in. The title of this chapter is The Safety of Fear. And he's speaking of a fear of God. The tragedy of modern faith is that we no longer are capable of being terrified. We aren't afraid of God. We aren't afraid of Jesus. We aren't afraid of the Holy Spirit. Now, right now, some of you are saying, well, we shouldn't be, should we? Well, do you remember the Chronicles of Narnia? Do you remember Lucy and her conversation with the beaver? And the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe Here's what she hears. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He is the king, I tell you. That's it. Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Jesus, lover of my soul. Yes, accessible. Yes, secure. Yes, our friend. But that friend is the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. By the word of his mouth, he spoke creation, including you and me, into existence. In a moment, he knows every hair that is on your head and those that used to be. He knows everything, everything about you. That's our king. That's our friend. Jesus is more than a buddy. Iaconelli goes on. As a result, we have ended up with a need-centered gospel that attracts thousands, thousands but transforms no one. What happened? What happened to the bone-chilling, earth-shattering, gut-wrenching, knee-knocking, heart-stopping, life-changing fear that left us speechless, paralyzed, and helpless? 
What happened to those moments when you and I would open our Bibles and our hands started shaking because we were afraid of the truth we might find there? Barclay tells us that the word used in the Bible for truth has three meanings. A word used to describe a wrestler grabbing an opponent by the throat. A word meaning to flay an animal. And a word used to describe the, the humiliation of a criminal who was per, paraded in front of a crowd with a dagger tied to his neck, its point under his chin, so that he could not put his head down. That is what the truth is really like. It grabs us by the throat. It flays us wide open. It forces us to look into the face of God. When is the last time you and I heard God's truth and were grabbed by the throat? Well, it should be every Sunday. And is that my fault or is it your fault? Is it your fault and is it my fault? Is it both and? Yes, it is. Because we as a body ought to be entering into this place week after week with an incredible sense of profound and perfect security met with this holy awe and wonder that the transcendent God is in this place and he's gonna transform our lives this day. But I gather that most of us don't walk in Sunday after Sunday saying, transform me today. When I walk out of this place, make me different in the way I think and feel. I understand I'm justified by grace alone, by faith alone. And so in that, let me come expectant to be different, to have gossip in my life, crucified, to have pornography delivered from me in terms of desire, to have a marriage reconciled that seems like it can't be reconciled. Give me that kind of terror and awe and wonder and security. Iaconelli goes on. That was Mark Davis. Now it's back to Mike Iaconelli. Unfortunately, those of us who have been entrusted with the terrifying, frightening good news have, have become obsessed with making Christianity safe. We have defanged the tiger of truth. We have tamed the lion. And now Christianity is so sensible, so accepted, so palatable. Who is afraid of God anymore? We're afraid of unemployment. We're afraid of our cities. We're afraid of the collapse of our government. We're afraid of not being fulfilled. We're afraid of disease, but we're not afraid of God. Last paragraph, and it really is the best. I would like to suggest that the church become a place of terror again. A place where God continually has to tell us, fear not. A place where our relationship with God is not a simple belief or doctrine or theology. It is God's burning presence in our lives. I am suggesting that the tame God of relevance be replaced by the God whose very presence shatters our egos into dust, burns our sin into ashes, strips us naked to reveal the real person within. The church needs to become a gloriously dangerous place where nothing is safe in God's presence except us. Nothing, including our plans, our agendas, our priorities, our preferences, our politics, our money, our security, our comfort, our possessions, our needs. 
It's an amazing thought. The one who has the power to do that is the one who gave us this holy passage to teach us, to rebuke us, to correct us, and to train us. Some of you I know are still struggling that I said they deserved it. So let me take you here to help. If you think that is so hard to swallow, then how do you swallow that God sent his own son who didn't deserve it to die for all of mankind because all of mankind did? And because of his perfect holiness, righteousness, and justice, he let his wrath unleash on his son so that all who would trust in him might live forever, ever. That's the grace of God. That's the grace of God. I deserve to be dropped. Barnhouse said it this way. If God acted the way today he did in Acts 5, then underneath every sanctuary would be a mortuary and there would be a mortician on the church staff. The truth is, there wouldn't be a church staff. Brothers and sisters, it's only by God's amazing grace that we are here today. Let that overwhelm us and bury us in the deepest security we have ever known. But let that security not dissipate the rightful awe, wonder, and fear that we should have of our King. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and sing holy, holy, holy.